0: Rodney, good afternoon. Hi, I'm going to acknowledge you this time. Hello, how are you? But it's fun when you don't acknowledge it. But me. it is, but I want to specifically talk to you about the concept of love. Mm. Right now. Mm. Uh the Over the past little bit, I don't know, nine months, I've been meditating on the Sanskrit, I think it's Sanskrit phrase, aham prema, which transcribes loosely into I am love. And I've been using it as a mantra and chanting it. And uh, it's really trying to transform my relationship with myself, like loving myself. And mm-hmm. it, it, it was weird to me thinking about the idea of loving myself. I'm like, of course, I love myself, which was not necessarily true. But um, I just want to share that, you know, man, I just want to acknowledge you. Love you, bro. Love you too, man. I Listeners, appreciate that because I have started you. this journey much later than you, but I'm on it now. And yeah. Yeah. Love. It's what I found is I think, you know, they say like you can't love other people until you love yourself. I don't know that that's, I don't think it's fully true. Like, I think you would can agree. love other people. Yeah. I think what I have noticed is a different form, a different expression, and there's a lot more room.
1: Welcome back to the more common podcast i am your co-host keith with my man rodney what's up brother what's happening
2: you know i gotta talk about compassion mm. and i'm taking it straight from our guest that you're about to hear from that compassion is how can we both win compassion is you are a part of who i am it is i see you i see in you my own humanity and offer my humanity to you to see and I I don't even have anything to add to that. Like,
1: listen, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And today we are with the co executive directors John and Katie of Essential Partners. Um, they are they set out to do the work of helping others navigate difficult conversations and get into the space where everybody can bring their best selves to the environment that they're in. And we talk a lot about that. Like We talk about conflict. We talk about compassion. We talk about um, their journey toward this work and really how do we set an example that helps answer the question, why bother?
0: We talk about
2: the idea of bringing one's whole self to work and some of the nuances in it. We talk about we, we, we to to Keith's point. When we talk about conflict. We can get pretty deep talking about that, and uh, we talk a lot about about agency and self agency and what that means towards all of this as we try and have relationships with other people. And I would say if you if you're someone who cares about conversation and cares about frankly cares about anybody else outside of yourself. This would be a great conversation to listen to.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's pretty broad, I
0: know, but,
1: but- it's a, it's a good one. And listen, if you want to check out any of our past episodes or anything more in common, go to moreincommon.ent.com and um, go go check out the podcast and you can check out a little bit more about what we're doing for consulting as we are aiming to help organizations drive productive human connection through these compassionate conversations. And um, so we, if you're interested or part of an organization that could, could use that work, um, hit us up, we are accessible. So feel free to reach out anytime. We will definitely get back to you.
3: She said, I am so tired of feeling like I don't belong in my community. I'm so tired of hiding who I am and and feeling like I have to be on guard around everybody. If this is what it's like, I wanna have this conversation. And it, to me, clicked in that living in that state of alienation, not belonging, being afraid, is just exhausting. It wears us down. And so I think you're absolutely right that, that the fear is maybe a quicker thing to access, but it, it's it uh, it takes a lot out of you. And and hope is the thing that gives you life. It brings you it brings you life. It allows you to to feel that sense of belonging and future. And I think I think it's where we want to live more.
1: Today, we are with Katie Heighton and John Sarouf of Essential Partners. They are co-executive directors, and John is the director of program development.
2: Founded in 1989, Essential Partners equips people to live and work better together in community by building trust and understanding across differences.
1: Katie joined the organization after completing her graduate studies at Tufts University Fletcher School, where her research in religious conflicts focused on the need for effective communication in complex political issues.
2: Katie helped develop the first university-wide interreligious institute at Pepperdine University. She has worked with Search for Common Ground in Lebanon, Results Education Fund in Washington, D.C., and as a mediator in the Massachusetts district courts.
1: Now, John was first exposed to EP's work while studying in the master's program in dispute resolution at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Since then, John has facilitated dialogues on issues such as sustainability, gender, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, religious pluralism, and technology and sexuality.
2: John served as the Assistant Director of Difficult Dialogues at Clark University, where he taught dialogue to faculty and students. His private consulting work has focused on mediation and transforming conflict in small work groups and nonprofit boards.
1: It's a fun show John Katie, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having us. So glad oh, to be here to
1: have you. Welcome. We we always enjoy and have had multiple people on the show with a common purpose and common cause. So it's always fun to have conversation with fellow and uh, lady conversationalists as uh, we've had a few actually on the show. So to start off in the lead up, we talked about your favorite tip to navigating difficult conversations. John, love the practicality of changing yeah, but to huh, interesting, tell me more, which I think is very functionally tied to Katie, your idea of tap into your own curiosity, which is very much tied to one of our four core principles within our approach to helping others navigating uh psychological safety for difficult conversations, and that is embracing and engaging with curiosity. So Um, We will start, I'm going to go right to Katie on um, understanding from your perspective, what does it mean to tap into curiosity and how do you go about doing that?
4: I love this idea of kind of embracing your own curiosity because there's a spark that I think can easily get stuck or can easily get lost. And that can be true whether you're stuck in a strategic planning conversation with your team and you just cannot seem to move forward, or whether you're stuck in a really difficult um, conflict in your community or with your family, whether it's around politics or around identity, that you just kind of get into loggerheads. And you just kind of keep saying the same thing back and forth, and nothing ever really changes until you until you can get out of that. And I think one way to do that that I have found is to just pick up on something that someone has said and be like, oh, that's interesting. I actually wanna know more about that, or that's unexpected, or even if it's not, even if it plays in, you can just say, I feel like there's something more to that. If someone says something, kind of a hard position right out the gate, you can say something like, how did you come to that belief? Uh, Tell me more about who taught you that belief or where you learned that belief. You know, in an organization it might be, tell me about how your job has intersected with that belief. You know, like what what have you seen happen that gives you that perspective? And it just opens up this whole world of conversation where all of a sudden people can say, can talk about what matters to them. And it's this kind of immediacy of getting unstuck and opening up some new air into a conversation that has felt pretty stale and pretty kind of old and well-trod uh, in many experiences. I,
2: th- I think there's an interesting bridge here between what you just said and what John said, so we can get his response, but what you just said there, answer part of a question that formed as you were talking, which was like, all right, well, when it gets, what if it's something that's triggering? Not just, it's not just a hard position, but like I'm emotionally, I'm physiologically triggered. How do I stay in my curiosity? And you answered part of it there, curious if you have any other thought any other thoughts on using curiosity there and then i'll throw that over to john to
4: i mean i think for me there's also a piece of curiosity that is that is agency you know that you have a choice of whether you want to lean into that and i think that can be freeing if you feel so emotionally triggered that you need to step away knowing that you can step away gives you the space to lean into curiosity when you want to like you can say i opt into this conversation but i want it to go differently and that for me is the place that i can say okay if i want the, if i want to stay here and i want to do this differently how can i how can i learn more about what this means but i think that only happens when you feel like you've opted into that choice you know especially when you're emotionally hijacked and you have the opportunity to say I appreciate what you said. I'm going to step away.
3: Right? And that and then then the curiosity is about yourself, right? The curiosity is, "Wow. Yes, something just happened there and I am like, here and I'm, you know, maybe I know what it is because this is an old story and an old loop that I've been part of, but maybe I don't." And I like, "Why is this going on for me?" And exactly what Katie said, it's agency. It's like, "Can I bring intention and not have to react out of that space. Not have to uh, feel like I'm going to bring something that I I did not want to bring to this. I, this is not what. This is not who I want to be. This is not who I. So what's happening to me? What's happening in this moment? Can I sort of walk myself back down my ladder? The breath, you know, the the just sort of pause. The uh, giving yourself a break, slowing things down that curiosity about yourself one of the things we talk about in dialogue is you know we hope that you'll learn a lot about the other person we also hope you'll learn a lot about yourself and what what you deeply care about and that's actually it surprised me we used to say that it's in our script we say that all the time and i remember hearing one participant say that in the end after a dialogue you know takeaways and all that stuff that we do at the end of a dialogue what are you what are you going to take away from this and they said i've never realized why this was so important to me and now i do that that level of curiosity about the self is just as important as it is about somebody else
1: there's um an old saying that rodney and one second there's an old saying that rodney is that we've actually put in our script is um you can't you can't hold two emotions at the same time So it's, it's physically impossible if you perceive curiosity as an emotion, not just an intellectual exercise, because I think we can feel curious, right? Like there is a feeling of curiosity, so you can't be angry and curious at the same time. So if you anchor on your curiosity, you cannot be angry. So it allows the momentum to go forward and just continue to be curious as you navigate whatever that conversation or space actually is. And it's
2: this, the other side of that that we don't always talk about is you can oscillate between them extremely quickly,
1: very <laughs> but <fast> you can't <laughs> actually have them yeah. both at the you same time. You better do. build that momentum up real fast because yeah. you to lose it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's actually,
3: it's actually, you've got to find the pathway to it. You've got to, you have to build mm-hmm. habits to it because it's you. We build. I mean, I have lots of habits that go straight to you know eleven where, you know, where I can go there and, and I can build that habit or I can build the other habit, which is to, okay, what what's going on? What can I do here? Can I ask a question? And it becomes a habit that helps form an intention. Right? Sometimes I can't get there, you know, with my higher order thinking. I actually have to get mm-hmm. there out of habit and the other follows behind. Which
1: speaks directly to your tip of, yeah, but, huh, interesting, tell me more. Like, it's just a Functional, like if you can't get out of it, just say those words. That's it. That's and my yeah. at least head in the right direction. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, it's also it's it kind of reminded me of the the story of the two wolves, the good wolf and the bad wolf. Like, which one are you gonna feed? The one you feed is the one that's gonna grow. So which intention are you gonna set and feed is very much uh where that goes. I had a question about you mentioned so agency and you can walk away. Like I immediately started asking myself, why is it that I stay engaged in conversations that I know are not going anywhere? Like it's only going to get more contentious. And I want to pose that to y'all. Like, why do we stay? Why do we stay in those situations?
4: So one of the agreements that we oftentimes suggest for our dialogues is that we always speak for ourselves. I have the sneaking suspicion that this question can be very personal. And so I'll say for myself, I stay the most frequent reason that i stay is because one i think i can do it like there's a voice in the back of my head that says if i if i just keep saying the thing if i just keep with it then i can i can do this even though if i were to really ask myself or even if i were to take a step back i would say you know this is going nowhere fast and i think just as a as a you know aside when we started um doing strategic planning or when we started planning last year we started uh, having one person on our team be an energy monitor, which I thought was really interesting because it's their it's their role to basically notice when that's happening, so you don't have to. <laughs> they can say, you know what, I'm gonna call a break. Uh, and And it's, cause it's hard to do when you're the one who's like, I just have to make them understand. I just, if I keep going, I can make them understand.
3: I think that's right. And, I, and it is personal. I think I, if I think back on the moments where I've been in that place, something's at stake that I really care about. I feel like I, I have to stand my ground. I'm, my, my choices get limited, right? My, my mind says I either live or die, I win or lose, right? They're, all of my, my choices feel like they're binary and, and ultimate. And um, it's now or never like all of that. So I lose, I lose capacity. I lose, I lose uh, uh, all of the options. I lose creativity. I lose, uh, you know, heart. I lose possibility and hope. And so, um, yeah, it's like it's fight or flight. It's live or die.
1: Well, I, I, I want to answer it in two ways because I, I, I love the idea and I want to call this out. This is very specific to the audience so it doesn't get lost as the, the idea of agency and speaking for self. Because it is very much um, our instinct to project our own personal experience onto others and then say, this is what most people do, right? My instinct when Rodney actually asked that question was, well, ego is clearly the answer. However, you both gave an answer that, yes, you could tie to ego if you were so um, hellbent on making sure that your position was solidified there. But at the same time, they were two different answers. So I love the the sentiment of "Speak for yourself" because it is really, really hard. It's something that reminds me of Sophie Baron from The Conversationalist that she tells you know use I statements, right? Like I do this versus we people, and you know then other people are like, yeah, but I don't do that, right? How about you, Rodney?
2: My answer is somewhere between all of you. I think Katie, what you okay. said is. Yeah, that's my Enneagram three coming out. Like, I see myself in all of you beautiful people. Like, I am you. We are all of us. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, at the at the root, it's like, I want to be right. And like, I am right, damn it. Like, why don't you know that? But I think it's much more the physio. It's pair that with the physiological and the the, my, the myopic my my options my options are off, and I, I'm not seeing straight. I'm not thinking straight. I think it's kind of all of what you got what you all said. So, yeah, thank you for indulging the question.
1: So, you know, coming into every conversation, I always like to prepare one question, and I don't usually say that other than to tie it back to one of the things that you said, John, in the lead up where we were talking about what keeps you going, and you said hope. and Katie, you said seeing little things work better, which ties directly into the question that I had prepared coming into us because Essential Partners has been around since 1989. This is a long time in the conversation workspace. Most people that we talk to have been in the conversation workspace for a long time. And yet we, due to social media and all of the reasons that make it harder these days for people to engage. And we actually see a devolve of relationships at a higher percentage than, as statistics have shown, familial relationships, friendships, I'm no longer, all because of politics generally, right? Um, but all kinds of reasons to where people feel justified in saying, I am allowed to not like you anymore. So what is your hope? for the future being that we have seen this especially over the last four to eight years and keeping this keeping this work going.
4: So for me, it's it's always kind of funny that I ended up in the space of conversation because I grew up in a military family and have always been, and John can speak to this, very operations focused, kind of very if how can we make this efficient? How can we make it effective? Like and it took me a long time to realize that taking the time to invest in relationships and conversations that are important, that are healthy, that are inclusive, creates better results. Like it just makes things better uh, and you're gonna get better decision-making, you're gonna get better work together, better collaboration, better innovation. Like, And the results are there, but I think it took me a long time to be able to say, I wanna invest my time and energy in this, knowing that it will pay off down the line. And I remember working with a group of students at a university over the course of a semester. And their work over the course of the semester was to design and facilitate a conversation on a topic that mattered to them on campus, that had to bring in different perspectives or identities related to that issue. And one of the students started talking about a pretty contentious housing policy that had changed in the university, that had made uh, that was really tough for students who couldn't afford off-campus housing. And she decided to do a dialogue on this issue between administrators and students, and they held this dialogue while a temp protest was happening downstairs, Uh, and deans were there, and students were there, and activists were there, and she said afterwards that all of them felt like they had been heard and seen, and that like two weeks later on campus, two of a student and an administrator were just having coffee together to talk more about it, and you just see that this investment, and she had worked for the whole semester to bring these people into a room together, because there was a lot of distrust, a lot of tension around this issue. And, and you know administrators and students alike saying, why would I come to this space when I'm just gonna get yelled at or when I'm not gonna be listened to? Why would I bother? Um, and to then actually see them say, oh, we can do this together better. And we're gonna actually start meeting for coffee after this to actually start working on this together was just so gratifying for me. And it it was hope in practice because you get to see the change. I mean, it takes a long time, but you get to see, you know, over time that these relationships actually make it possible for people to turn to each other rather than going back to their camps Um, and saying, how can we make, you know, our futures are intertwined in some way. We can't, you know, like there's no way that we can do this separately. So, you know, How can we, how can we come together and listen to each other and learn from each other in this new way?
1: Mm. I have a question on that, but I'll get John's thoughts here.
3: Uh, So I, um, I think maybe because of my cultural heritage, which is, which is Lebanese, I I have this like long view of history. Time is just a little bit different to to people in the Middle East, you know, the answer is, well, when's it, when's when's this thing going to get done? Tomorrow, God willing, you know. I mean, I don't know. We'll see. But but there's a, there, I mean, you know, there there were uh, there've been a hundred years of war. There was a hundred years of war between in, a civil war in in England. And sure, they have their problems, but people travel all around. They marry with each other. They live together. There are wars uh, in uh, civil wars in in uh, you know through the Middle East uh, and new ones. And and in you know a hundred years later, they're living and marrying together. This is th- this is possible. We can do this. Right? This is this is who we are. And for every moment where there is a moment of hatred in our country, there are. Thousands of moments of love and connection. And one of the projects we did down in and we're still doing down in Columbia, Maryland, is this interfaith community. Uh, whole, it started with six congregations, uh, muslims and and christians and and Jews and uh, different denominations within uh, all of those parts. And now it's grown to like I think there were sixty two different congregations in this past year. But after the first set of them, The Tree of Life Synagogue shooting happened in Pittsburgh, right? And the synagogue in Columbia, Maryland, had a service to pray for and commemorate that. The rabbi told me that she had to do a service twice. She had to do one inside and then go out into the parking lot and do another service because... So many people came that they had built relationships with through these conversations that wanted to show their support. They couldn't fit into the into the temple. She had to go out and do one in the parking lot for people who had come. Sure, there's going to be moments when people do things, acts of hatred. There are going to be moments when we're frustrated with each other there is so much more love and kindness and reaching out to each other so much more capacity for that we just need to make space for people to see that for people to understand that it's a long it's a, it's a long arc of history that we're in the middle of so we just yeah it's, it's about that's why we have to keep hope
2: i think in in between your two answers what i heard one thing i pulled out of it is is that it's hard you often hear people say conversation isn't action conversation, isn't moving things along. And it's very much an entitled point of view in that I am, I want something to happen right now. And most important things, most most meaningful things don't happen right now. They, they take time and because I don't see that action right now, that's a, that's a barrier. And then the other one I think is, It requires staring down some internal demons and that is wickedly hard. It's painful. I would even say, and it's a lot easier to just be like, I subscribe to this view set and I'm going to just keep it moving, bro. Just like get out of my face, keep it moving. I'm going to then just sit down and sit and talk to whomever. So yeah, but thank you for the answers. That was
1: wonderful. I think, um, there's an interesting component that, I mean, very similar, and there comes to this space that you said, Katie, about, well, why would I bother? That mentality, to Rodney's point, that is very much interwoven, like, why, why bother? I'm, the most common thing that we always try to break down is, I'm not going to change their mind right? Well, why are you trying to change their mind? Like if that's your goal, you're right. You're not going to. So, but that leads to why am I, why do I bother? And what, so how do we get people? And I think we're all trying to find this answer (laughs) because I think we'd be be killing it as businesses if we did. Um, But how do we get people to see those things as possible? So they go, oh, that's why I would bother.
4: You know, it's interesting. I think, oh, sorry, Rodney.
1: You see go. You. No, I think you. Having, but
2: you go.
4: I, I was actually going to I'm say, the
2: host. I'm the host. You're the guest. You go.
4: <laughs> um, well, I'm just loving this anyway. So, but I think I actually want to speak to both of those things because I think it's a both and. Because what, what Roddy, what I heard you say, and something that I that we oftentimes work with clients in this really messy middle. Like even if we can get them to start the conversations and invest in this that things sometimes get harder before they get easier, because when you start talking about stuff, stuff starts coming up and some hard stuff starts coming up, stuff that you may have not wanted to pay attention to before or may have wanted to kind of put in the closet and shut the door and like never touch again. And I think lifting that up with in that middle ground where you don't know what to do with it yet is sometimes the hardest part. But I think to your point, um, that there's this, there's also this piece, actually, I was just working with this, this school in Georgia, and we've been, we've been trying to kind of, they're kind of a, a middle and upper school, most of them, they do preschool through upper school, but it was really interesting because we had been talking with them about working with them for a while. And then we had talked about, and we always kind of, we tend to start slow for exactly that reason, like our impulse is always to kind of build. Press it slowly to make it optional, you know, no mandatory, you know, uh, revealing your soul conversations and um, in the middle of our conversations, uh, the shootings in, in the Georgia spa happening uh, happened and. They called me up and they said, you know, we are being asked our teachers, our staff are being asked to hold space. They're being asked to help their students process this and wrestle with it and think about it and they are not ready. And I think um, and 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 what they said to us is, look, we know that we're not going to do this. Well, if we do this now, if we open this up, we don't know if we can close it yet. And so we actually need to do this yesterday. Like we need to actually and, and the whole thing moved forward and we ended up working with all of their faculty and staff because I think people are starting to realize that. Especially if you are in a space where you're in a leadership role or you are in a teaching role or if you are invested in a community in some way, you're starting to have these conversations. And, you know, I think there's the hope piece, but then there's also the like, how do we help you not be terrified of this or or not know that you can handle it and handle it well? Not know that you can sit and hold space for these people who desperately need it. And know that you can do it. And that's, I think, a gift um, that people, you know, once they feel confident enough to do it, to say, like, actually, you know, if this were to come up, I can do this. I think that there's something new that comes from that that can get you through both that first step of why bother. uh, Because if you're going to have them anyway, might as well do them well or you might not, you know, don't avoid them. But it can also get you through that messy phase where you're kind of stuck in it until you know what you're going to do with it.
2: Uh, to what you said, Keith, I, I want to ask everybody, is is hope more powerful than fear?
1: If it's accessed, yes. Okay. Hope can keep you alive. I mean, fear can keep you alive too, but like hope can keep you alive through the worst of worst times. Fear can keep you alive in a moment. But hope can keep you alive for a long time. I think fear is easier to access because we're used to it. We know it. We understand it. We see it. It's primitive. Hope is not primitive. Yeah, I primitive. think it's Hope primitive. is evolved. Like, we're yeah. hardwired for fear. Is the- mm-hmm. like, And we, we access fear because it's, it's acute. So it's, it's easy to pull from in moments. It's easy to be afraid of a snake. So it's thus easy to be afraid of my neighbor, because it's the same emotion. But hope is cognitive and very—it's existential in a lot of ways, and it's—it's forward-looking. You know, you get confronted with a, a snake, you don't go, "Boy, I hope it doesn't bite me." No, you run. What What do you two think?
3: Yeah, and it fears exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting, and that's part of what happens in polarization, and it's part of what we're seeing in our country now. People get exhausted, and they just check out, I don't want to do this anymore. I yeah. just can't be in it. I, we I was, we were asked to do some dialogues around guns, right, and so we always do a lot of research and a lot of mapping before we get into a new conversation. I didn't know much about guns. you know, It's not really part of my culture, but we got together some, a, a you know, a bunch of people that were all gun owners, gun rights advocates, and they came ready, right? They were in sort of full battle mode. They wanted to convince me. They didn't know who I was. What are you, who paid for this? You can't, you know, you can't convince, you can't take my guns. Uh, I just want to learn. I'm just here to ask some questions. You know what? well, what do you want to do with it? Well, we were talking about maybe having dialogues between people and you can't talk to them. They don't get it. They're just, you know, okay, that's fine. Then maybe they won't. So so we'll just, so I just, can I just ask some questions? All right, go ahead. So I'd ask and tell me about your first gun. Tell me about, you know, what your, some experiences. Tell me about what, uh, what, what did, what would you wish people knew about you and your, and your ownership and your relationship to guns? What do you think people are mistaken about, you know, what do you what do you wish you knew about them? Talk with sit and listen for like an hour and a half or just take notes and show them, you know, really listen. And at the end, one of the women said, uh, can we do this with with people who are on the other side? And I said, uh, yeah, but can you tell me why you'd want to? She said, I am so tired of feeling like I don't belong in my community. I'm so tired of hiding who I am and, and feeling like I have to be on guard around everybody. If this is what it's like, I want to have this conversation. And it, to me, clicked in that living in that state of alienation, not belonging, being afraid, is just exhausting. It wears us down. And so I think you're absolutely right that that the fear is maybe a quicker thing to access, but it it's it uh, it takes a lot out of you. And and hope is the thing that gives you life. It brings you it brings you life. It allows you to to feel that sense of belonging and future. And I think I think it's where we want to live more.
4: Yeah, I love that. I at the risk of being a little bit of a Debbie Downer. What the other thing that I will say, which I think is connected because John is the most inspirational person, like truly that I have ever met. I would follow him literally anywhere. And also I think hope can also be terrifying because if you have been let down over and over and over by your community and your organization, letting yourself imagine a different future, which is really what hope is, you know, letting yourself imagine a different future can be so hard and it it can be so, it it can feel like losing a part of your soul to get disappointed and betrayed over and over again. And we talk a lot in our work about the importance of trust. And I think there's trust in the process, there's trust in other people, there's trust in your community. What I love about what John was saying is that those folks had trouble getting to a place where they could imagine a different future. They had trouble getting to a place where they could hope Until they got a little taste of it, until they could trust enough to say, okay, let me see if I can, let me see if I can try this again. And maybe this time will be different. And I think there, you know, history repeats itself. Sometimes it is really tough to be able to believe that. So I think there's such value in hope. And I also totally understand that it is, it can be scary too, that, you know, to let yourself hope is a risk sometimes uh, if you've Mm -hmm. been disappointed a lot
1: waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's a real thing. I've lived there much of my life. Rodney, what do you think on it? Uh, I think you got, you, I agree with, the,
0: uh,
1: <laughs> <everything>. <laughs> I agree. Fair enough. Um, so that, um, I don't know. Do you want to add anything there? Uh, nope. Kind of catch you off there. Okay. Um, that leads to you know, to just kind of tying back to something you said, Katie, I never imagined I'd be in conversation work. And so you both are in it. Like what, where did the inspiration come from? Like, how did this come about for the two of you? Is it something that you grew up with? Like how, how did this, you know, Katie, we know you were, you're, you're a military kid. Like, how about you, John? Where did that come from as well?
3: I mean I had an idea about peace as a thing I uh, as I said I'm of Lebanese heritage and I am um, I'm 50 years old oh my gosh um which means I grew up for 15 years of my formative life from 75 to 90 was the years of the Lebanese civil war and I didn't live there but my grandparents house my cousins were living in that house they could stay in the village that uh, that our family is from until eighty two, and then they had to leave. And uh, so I, I grew up with this sort of you know letters and stories and watching it on the news. If you don't if you don't know, if you didn't live at those times. It's Syria now. It's Iraq. It's Afghanistan. It's like this endless kind of carnage and despair and um and and sense of hopelessness really. And then and then in 90, they, the war, they had the, the Taif Accords, and part of the reconciliation was they invited people back. They invited Christians from the, from the mountains back into the villages, which sort of blew my mind. Like, that's not what you do when you win a war. You win a war like, ooh, I won the war, you know, now I take everything. But that's not what they did. They said, come whoever's living in your house Uh, has to leave and we're going to give them money to to build a house because of course they lost their house somewhere else right they didn't just you know were like just out looking house hunting they they were displaced themselves and and then they gave money to rebuild uh, my grandparents house and it's like what is that about what is it we're gonna and people and my my cousin was the first first in the, the last in the village to leave first in the village to come back and And I, when I was went back to grad school, I went and did my research. There's like, what is it, what's it like to come back to And this is what you were talking about, Rodney, about like, like they don't have much of a choice, you know? I mean, this isn't, you can't just say, well, I'm done with you. You know, I mean, I guess you could leave your country or something, but this is a, this is my, this is my home. This is where I belong. And so they had long conversations and they had invited each other over for tea and, and weddings and funerals like this is what you do when there's a wedding you invite people when there's a funeral you invite people after you know sunday service you invite people you make tea you sit and you talk and you slowly re-knit your relationships and for me that was like that that history that thing would just felt like the seed was planted when i was really young to do that Hmm my brother's a soldier and he went off to fight after 9-11 and I felt like yeah, my generation's calling is to help heal the you know help heal that so he doesn't have to go do the, so that Katie's father doesn't have to go fight anymore you know and all the people that are off doing it so um yeah that's sort of I think the seed for me
4: I think my seed It it depends I think we're all really good or I'm better at creating a narrative looking back than I am looking forward. You know, I don't think I ever would have imagined myself here, but looking back, it makes sense. I think I spent a lot of my childhood as an outsider trying to figure out what it looks like, what this new culture looks like. How do I fit into this new culture? Like, what are the ways of being, where do people meet? Where do people hang out? You know, and and trying to kind of find myself in those places. And so, um, and I will also say that those are places that are not the most exciting for a kid to go to that we were almost scheduled to be stationed in in japan and i was so excited to like travel the world and do the things and then we got restationed to omaha nebraska and it was different but i just remember loving you know those new those new places loving um, figuring out people loving figuring out where i fit you know how figuring out you know you kind of get to figure it yourself in those times So then when I went to school, I was like, all I want to do is travel. (laughs) I didn't get to go to any cool places as a kid. So I want to go to all over the world now. And so I studied international relations and found myself drawn to the role that identity plays in all of our lives. And, and And, you know, I couldn't have explained it at the time. You know, there are so many different things that you can study in international relations. But, you know, I really think that trying to... Connect people's hearts and souls and experiences and communities to their places, to their policies, was always something that I loved. Um, and I ended up actually doing a little bit of work in um, Israel, Palestine, and in Lebanon um, as well, and just heard people say over and over, you know, no matter what they were looking at. And I remember looking, I was looking at the role that identity plays in foreign policy, in the United States foreign policy, particularly in Lebanon. And I remember talking to everybody, you know, I would, I would talk to people on all sides of the conflict and they would tell me all different things. You know, I, we really appreciate America's democracy. It's a model for us to please never, you know, please everyone leave and never, never do anything in Lebanon again. You've only made a huge, a huge mess. But the constant thing that I heard was that, um, that Americans just do not understand us. Americans just do not understand Lebanon, And I remember just sitting back and saying, how does that work? Like, how does that piece of this work? You know, you can create complex and nuanced research and, and, you know, I was was using all the research that policymakers had access to and it's beautifully done and articulate and talks a lot about identity, but I just realized no one could talk about it. Like we just couldn't talk about the messy things that weren't, you know, economic policy, constitutional law, you know, What are the the pillars of democracy that we want to be building here? What is the State Department's mission? What is the Defense Department's, you know, Department of Defense's mission? What's Congress's goal here? And talking across and within those lines, you know, just about those most important things, about those things that are hard to access, hard to define, hard to quantify. So, yeah, that's, that's actually how I ended up finding public conversations. And John was kind enough to interview me back in the day. But truly, I mean, this, I I started saying, how do you do that piece? How do you do that piece of helping people build that understanding that says, I am seen and I I feel like I was, my voice was taken seriously in this decision, in this policy, in this organization, in this culture, really, you know, we talk sometimes in our work about co-creating culture. How do we help people, you know, see themselves in what they create or in, see themselves in, in the communities and the organizations that they're a part of. And it's messy, messy work, but it's, it's been, I don't know, a piece of who I am, I guess, ever since.
1: Oh, uh, well, thank you both for sharing your story. Well, I appreciate your, that. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Both of your answers had uh conflict in them. Um, How how do y'all think about conflict, whether it be large-scale war
1: or just one-on-one, one-v-one? Oh, we're going to take a pause right there this week. I hope you're enjoying the show.
2: Just take a moment to take all the goodness from Katie and John. Let us soak in. In a few days, we'll be right back. Or maybe you can just hit play on the second part.